And can we start to then see moments as a, as a design target together? Like we can measure it, we can under, we try to understand it, we can understand how moments are connected to one another. And by if we start using that similar language and using the term the same way, it can kind of unlock that cross-functional collaboration that companies find it really hard to like get everybody focused on the same thing. Welcome to the Human Insight Podcast, where we share with you the business stories, ideas, and trends shaping the future of customer experience, told firsthand by the experts themselves in thought-provoking conversations. Hi, everyone. I'm Janelle Estes, Chief Insights Officer at User Testing. And today we're thrilled to have Patrick Quattlebaum joining us on the Human Insight Podcast. Patrick is the co-founder and CEO of Harmonic Design. Previously, Patrick was Managing Director at Adaptive Path and Head of Service Design at Capital One. He's also the co-author of Orchestrating Experiences, Collaborative Design for Complexity. Thanks so much for joining us today, Patrick, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So as I understand it, Patrick, you've got a passion for helping nonprofits and especially libraries. So for this insight segment, we actually asked some user testing contributors about their library experiences and how they think libraries can improve. So let's listen along to what they said. Um, ever since I was able to walk, um, I remember going to the library I've always had a good experience um, at the library. It was always magical to me. But now as an adult, I use my public library again, at least once a week um, for myself and for my own children. I have always loved the environment of a library. And even now I, I do use it to um, with my own kids. Um, they get books and that way I try to pass on the joy of visiting a library. Closest library to us just got remodeled. So we're using all of those new features. We've used like the 3D printing at the library. Um, so it's come a long way from, you know, when I was just a kid checking out some read along books. I think it's a place to um, just really foster and facilitate learning in all subjects and all ages and uh, never end, never stop learning. I believe that the role of libraries in the community is probably understated or can't be overstated. Um, there are so many resources. It's not just a place to go and find a good book. I feel like I'm semi-informed. Like, I don't know everything there is to know. I think they could educate the community better on the services they provide and examples of how you could use them to the best of your ability. If they aren't already, I would have to say um, going out into the public where the people are would maybe be um, a, a better way to serve the public. Um, and I think the other thing would just be like focusing some more um, programming to like those middle ages. So like there's a ton of programming for seniors and a ton of programming for kids, um, but there's not a lot of programming for like um, 20 to 60 year olds. So I certainly agree with the sentiment around libraries being magical places. What did you think about that feedback, Patrick? Yeah, I, the feedback tracks a lot with what I've learned in the last decade of working with different libraries. I've worked with, uh, especially around libraries in cities um, across the U.S. And 
you know, a few things that they mentioned stood out to me. So one is the comment about, um, you know, spending more time with the community. You know, one of the things that, that Perch and I take with libraries is they, they obviously spend a lot of time with the public um, coming into the library and, and, and libraries typically do a lot of uh, quant and, um, and do different types of surveys and have a lot of data on say circulation of books and other materials. Um, when I work at the libraries, I teach them how to do qualitative research and spend one-on-one -on -one time with community members and really um, understand kind of their, the, the lives that are unfolding around them. Uh, libraries are magical places and they, they try to help. They're the front lines of so many different things in the community and improving it. And so the more they can understand really the texture of the lived experiences around them, they're pretty equipped to then turn that into new programs and services to help. And they do so many things beyond the, the kind of the, the things that were part of the mission of libraries in, in the beginning. And the comment about, you know, 20, 20 to 60, what happens in there? Well, the, the answer is you would be amazed how much libraries are doing for people from ages 20 to 60 around switching careers, dealing with homelessness, things that, um, you know, libraries are hiring social workers, artists. There's so many things that they're doing. Um, and I've really found that uh, giving them new tools from research to be able to go out and tap into the stories or unfolding them around them in, in the, uh, the community, that librarians turn that knowledge, those insights into even better results for the community. So I, I love working with librarians. Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting to hear that perspective. And I think it also brings me back to sort of, you know, um, some of the sort of early shaping of our industry was library science, right? And and sort of this idea of, well, information architecture, right? And, and that was sort of born out of this idea of cataloging and organizing, which all really started in, within library. So, um, yeah. That's where I that's where I got my start <laughs> was back in the late nineties as an information architect and going to early IA summits and yes. and uh, a lot of the skills that I and kind of a lot of the concepts that I from those days I still use today just in different ways. But yeah, that that understanding information environments and how people navigate them is still so much a, a big part of, of the work. Yeah, absolutely. Oh gosh, I feel like we could go down into the uh the history of our <laughs> of our industry uh, for quite some time. I, I want to back up though and and really ask you a little bit more about yourself. Um, you know your your progression through lots of different companies um, within the UX space. Some of and many of which were quite defining and you know considered to be really I guess poster children for for a lot of the folks that are, are listening in today. So I'd love for you to kind of tell us your journey and maybe even what's top of mind for you these days. Sure. Well, I, I you know I, I always start with that my my undergraduate degree is in literature. So I'm a humanities a humanities uh, educated in humanities and a big believer in the importance of the humanities to everything that I do. And if, if people ask me like, Hey, you know, you have a design degree, what things kind of helped you get to where you are. I'm like my humanities degree, like without that, I would feel, you know, completely lost. It really, it really provides a incredible foundation for me. Um, but I, you know, after getting a literature degree, 
uh, and deciding not to become a professor teaching Samuel Beckett, like in uh, somewhere, some small college somewhere. I, uh, I worked in the family business, so I got, it was a service business. So I've learned how to run a small service business. And then uh, late nineties, like a lot of people, when the web was starting to get more popularized, segued into information architecture and got a master's in design. And um, I, I, w- I would say I would consider my tribe up until maybe the, kind of 2000 to 2008, 2009 was user experience. And then I uh, discovered service design uh, and realized that I was doing it without really knowing that was the label. And that was the scale of design that I was really most passionate about. So I spent uh, since that time uh, working in service design, had the uh, uh, great experience joining Adaptive Path when we were shifting more of the practice towards that. And then at, at Capital One and introducing that to the, uh, to the organization. And then, um, I, I, but I'm a consultant at heart. So I, I, I've gone back, I've started my own company and we focus uh, specifically on service design uh, and working at that scale of where um, services and systems uh, and trying to, to look at things from that level of Zoom and then partnering with product designers and, and people of all sorts to just try to make better, better outcomes for people. And um, I guess what's on my mind, I think like a lot of people these days is a lot of things around us have been disrupted in terms of our daily lives and what it means to be a person navigating the world inside and outside of organizations and, you know, what those changes are and what they mean, how to get better at practice to, to, to make better design interventions and, in these complex systems is something that I'm really thinking about every single day in our practices. Yeah, absolutely. I know. Yeah. It's been sort of a constant change and disruption for going on what three years now, just about two and a half. And, you know, I think you're right in the sense of, you know, we're all, we, We've got all these external things happening around us, and and n- never mind your personal life, your career, your, <laughs> you know, the other things that are part of what makes you individual. But there's just outside contextual, you know, COVID, inflation, war, um, upcoming elections, and 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 um, I think you're very right in the sense that like it's important for us as people in this pro- profession and just as companies are who are delivering products and experiences, like all of these things need to be taken into account into account when we are, you know, delivering experiences to customers. And, and I think that's what a lot of practitioners are trying to figure out, which is, you know, at the same time, when I talk to most designers and other and people in other roles and companies, either clients or, or um, other organizations, and I'm sure you hear this all the time, then there's also, how can we go faster? And so the, the tension between um, realizing that you can't, you can't do these slow, top-down, big changes, like a lot of change has to come from the bottom up and from the, the side, but also that you have to be thoughtful of what, where, where you're making change, that it is impacting something that's too complex to design. And so how do you balance that um, zooming out and understanding the systems, making interventions, zooming back out, uh, making change, but also realizing that a lot of things, that things will take time to make bigger change. 
Um, and how do you do that well? And I don't pretend to have the answer to that. I don't think anyone does. I think what everyone is trying to do is get better at it. Like how do you balance that, the big picture and the small changes that you can make day to day? Yeah, absolutely. And I think your point around it being sort of a, a grassroots or more team effort is spot on. Um, and I, you know, I've been kind of reading up on some of the, the the things that you've posted and and published. And you've said in the past that good design is a team sport. Um, so how do you mm-hmm. recommend getting everyone kind of playing together, especially when not everyone is a is a designer? Yeah, and I think that's in the design field. I mean, that's you know, I'd say a big theme of the last at least 20 years has been, you know, how much of it is facilitation versus making, right? And that the facilitation is maybe often considered more strategic and that the making is considered less. And I I kind of disagree with that. I I still have trouble with the phrase design thinking because of that, because it's hard for me to decouple the thinking and the making <laughs> and that the reality is you, you need to be able to, uh, to be able to, there are modes of working and that at any moment you may need to, you know, lean back or lean in, you know, to reflect or to, to make something. And, um, and the reality is, is that a lot of the things that we're trying to make as much as people talk about technology, I mean, that's just one ingredient to what we're all trying to do and that you need people who understand um, how to design a good process or how to create the right environment for a, a human to do a job or to write a good policy or change a bad policy. And so you need these different skill sets and competencies and points of view on any team. And the teams hopefully are more diverse and reflecting the world around them, which means, you, you know, you have to be comfortable with, um, you know, uh, with getting better at how you, when you gather and bring people together, how you do facilitate that work, but then also how do you then also um, uh, then make sure that action is followed after bringing together and either aligning or sense-making and seeing things more clearly. Um, and, and, and I think that is that ability to uh, know how and when to lean in to guide something versus just to sit back and let, let people go and, and do the work, whether you call it design or not. Um, and again, it's a little bit of a dance and it's something that some of it you gain with experience, but I think it, it's, it really starts with understanding and embracing that a lot of things we're all trying to work on together is not one skill set, one approach, one t- even one type of design is, is usually not going to be able to make a dent in some of the change that we're trying to make. Yeah, it's an interesting kind of um, distinction to make between facilitating and, and facilitating design and making design. And I think you see that as well with um, with getting customer insight and feedback. Like there's sort of that dance that's happening right now as well there in terms of facilitating uh, other teams, people, individuals to talk to customers, gather feedback versus, I guess, instead of making, maybe it's collecting. I don't know if I just use a different word. No, I I think that's a good, yeah, yeah. I completely agree. I mean, back in, you know, what do we, what do we call them? The aughts back in 2005, 2006 and seven, you know, I was building a large user experience team and I, I had somebody who um, was, you know, going to, 
take design research and start to build that out. And I remember talking to her back then, like, all right, you're a really good researcher. Uh, your job now is to help other people do parts of the research. We have to increase the surface area. There will never be enough time or money or researchers to collect. We, it's like, we're always going to wish we could know more. Um, so how can we equip other people to do that? And part of our job is to reduce the degrees of separation between people who make decisions that impact someone's experience, you know, and that person. And, um, and so I think, you know, in, in working with different research teams, it's tricky because in some cases, uh, you know, it's the same thing. What am I guiding and helping other people gather their own uh, data and form their own insights and inject into it practice, help them get better versus when do I do it myself? And um, it's a case by case kind of reading the situation. And there's so much benefit by equipping others to um, to be part of the research process and to create create that surface area. Um, because there's just, and the more data, you know, we're creating more and more data in organizations all the time. Like if only a few people know, know how to collect it and, and uh, make sense of it, then we're, we're going to drown in it. <laughs> It'll, you'll never, you'll never make the impact that could really be there. So it's, it's a lot, a lot of the same things in research. I think that, that designers, I think we face some of the same dynamics. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, what I see any, at least is that half the battle is getting people okay with that mindset. Right. And the other half is yes. making it happen. <laughs> I don't know if you, yeah, yeah. no, def definitely. I mean, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, introducing the guardrails and the rigor and kind of coaching people to be able to do it. And then creating the time. I mean, that's obviously the other thing that we all deal with is, well, where's the time, right? Um, most companies that I work with are trying to become more collaborative. And I mentioned earlier, it'd be great to have this diverse team and people from this team and that team and that team. Well, try to assemble, try to assemble all those smart people, talented people in one place, you know, the same place at the same time with the energy and presence to work well together. Um, you know, we're, it's hard. And, and I think the last two and a half years, we have a lot of, I was talking about this earlier today with one of our practitioners, we, a lot of people are tired. And so how do you, it's the right thing to try to do. Um, it doesn't mean it's easy. Um, and uh, I know with the companies that we work with, it's a it's continual experimentation of what is that right formula that balances um when you look back on it, that we did good research and it created quality insights that we use, but, but also that um, we were able to involve more people, get them closer to it, which leads to the action. It's, it's kind of creating the change through the process versus doing the work, giving people insights and hoping that they take it and change. Right. Um, but again, it's, it's a, it can be very, it can be a, a very challenging uh, in general, and then I think I think right now, after two and a half years of the pandemic, I, I sense from talking to a lot of people that, uh, and I'll speak for myself, we're a little tired, <laughs> but we want to keep it up. You know, keep the keep the energy up as best we can. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I want to switch gears a little bit and and um, ask you a little bit about 
your your viewpoint on the importance of everyone getting aligned on what we call things. Um, so <laughs> things like the difference between channels and touch points and ecosystems and journeys. And you're right, I hear words used interchangeably all the time. So yeah, I, I'd love to hear your your perspective. Yeah, this is another tricky one because I, I definitely have worked with some organizations that have tried to say, here's the word, here's the definition, and here's who owns it. You cannot change the definition, they own the word. And that is a little too, that kind of just goes against linguistics and like how language language emerges. And that's just the, um, I think you're, it's a, a lost cause from the beginning. Um, but I do, I do think that it, in, in working or working with organizations and, and making sure when we're using words to say, okay, what do you mean in this context? So like when you say channel, are you talking about a medium? Are you talking about a distribution channel? Um, are you talking about what you're watching on the television? <laughs> you know, what, what are you saying by channel in this instance? Um, uh, but I, I think the, the word that, um, the word that I, 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 the most kind of hoping people to get alignment on lately has been moment, which, you know, when I, when Chris and I wrote the book, you know, if we'd written it like a year later, there probably would have been a chapter about moments versus being just part of the a journey chapter, because, you know, I think moments are the, are, are the concept that I think are, are, is really powerful and that people kind of naturally gravitate towards moment. You'll hear signature moment, critical moment, key moment, moments that matter, moments of truth. There's so many different versions of it. And every different department from their kind of point of view, like might think of a branded moment versus another thing like, well, you know, the moment of entering the store or whatever. Um, what 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 I've been fascinated by is this concept of moment, how it could be going back to your inf information architecture thing from from years ago as an architectural element that we can think about like this moment occurs and this event occurs that we can actually observe and that we can maybe collect data on and that we can then do additional research to then really understand the dynamics around that moment, you know, and that kind of taps into some systems thinking in terms of drilling into structure and mental models. And can we start to then see moments as a, as a design target together? Like we can measure it, we can under, we try to understand it. We can understand how moments are connected to one another. And by if we start using that similar language and using the term the same way, it can kind of unlock that cross-functional collaboration that companies find it really hard to like get everybody focused on the same thing. So that, that in terms of language is the one lately that I think is, um, is ripe for more consistency, I think could, could help create some of the outcomes that, people are looking for and trying to create these systemic designs and end-to-end -end experiences and things like that. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And you know what I love about that word is that it is so much more about the customer than it is about maybe how you yes. think about yourselves internally, right? It's like, oh, we have the social channel and we have the the lead generation, or maybe we have a journey for our customers, but it's like, it's actually not the customer journey. It's the way we think about ourselves journey where moments is like, that just feels like it kind of tips things upside yeah. down a little bit. Yeah. What we've been playing with is, yeah, is, you know, to use an analogy, if like you're doing database design and you make a key and that kind of ties different tables together, 
our concept is a moment can do that, right? But it's 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 a customer construct, you know, a human construct because it could be an employee moment as well, or you can think of a moment where a customer and an employee come together to create an experience, and they both should get value right from it. Uh, and, and essentially, a moment is a is a is a, an experience in which you create that value exchange. Um, so I think there's a lot of a promise to it, but we have talked about that and as we've been experimenting with it is yeah it's a it's a human key versus the the ways that we typically talk about in business that are very abstract or very inside out like could we actually embed a human key human keys human moments across decision making within companies yeah i love that um so speaking of moments which are to me the way that i'm thinking about it and the way that you're explaining it it's sort of these points in time, I guess you could say. But one of mm-hmm. the strategies I've also he- heard you talk about and have read a little bit about is this concept of zooming out. Mm-hmm. So um, can you talk a little bit more about maybe the the role of z- that zooming out plays in sort of orchestrating all these moments, perhaps? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the basic idea of z- Zoom is, um, and, you know, there's different, uh, it's not a unique concept of like, zooming out or 10x or um but the basic idea is when you're designing something so if you think about uh a moment in time and maybe you're designing you know the uh you know the the checkout experience on a retail website that that functionality is serving a moment that is if you zoom out of course that's part of their of maybe a shopping experience on the site, but that if you zoom out again, that could be part of a shopping experience in which that site is a part of a bigger system that you're interacting with and you could just keep zooming out. Or another example would be, you know, often when you're uh, designing, say, a mortgage experience of getting a, uh, getting a home, you could zoom out and look at the home buying experience and then you can see differently what it means to get a mortgage and either how you could you could design that experience better or you see opportunities for potentially other products and services that help people navigate something more consequential, you know, in their life. And so the, the, the basic rule of thumb though, is whatever you're designing, try to zoom out at least one thing. And then that would be true for research. So, you know, there's a lot of usability research and, you know, like can someone use the feature or functionality of something, but then, well, zoom out a little bit more and understand the context of, and then you start to see maybe that it's not the functionality, it's the mental model of something larger that's affecting how they're then trying to do some task. And you just put it in, in context and you can see more clearly how you might be able to improve the design um, as a result. Yeah. I mean, it's an important context that, that I think a lot of people for, forget about, right? That, not only is maybe the interaction that you're working on or the system that you're working on coexisting with other touch points that your company is likely responsible for, but you're actually part of this broader ecosystem or, or life of somebody, you know, your mortgage buying experience is, is a great one where it's like, okay, this is home buying in general, not just, you know, uh, uh, applying for a mortgage. There's so much uh, emotion and empathy uh, that could be built yes. for people when you actually look at 
that larger experience and you apply it to design and experience. Um, so, you know, what actually could be a, a really nice segue here around this idea of zooming out uh, and really looking at and understanding the people and the humans that you're designing for. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I hear is that um, sharing insights is, is um, let's say, one of the things that's challenging is bringing companies and teams along with like building this like shared understanding of of who their customers are. Maybe if we use that mortgage mm-hmm. application experience, like you know, how 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 do we actually humanize that person that's going through this journey of purchasing a home or mortgaging a home? Um, and then also thinking about like you know the role that that storytelling has in, in all of this storytelling of, of who your customers are. And so we actually asked um, product leaders, designers, and marketers about some of the challenges that they have related to this idea of building this shared understanding of of who your customer is. So I'd love to watch this with you and then we can, we can hash it out. Please rate my level of agreement with the following statement. I'm satisfied with how customer insights I learn are shared and understood throughout the organization. Uh, I mean, this is like the eternal problem with any kind of UX research sharing, right? Like, it goes in a deck somewhere or it goes in some research repository and then it gets ignored or it's in some centralized hub other people don't know about. The challenge is getting them to care, <laughs> which is a very human thing. I try to make it interesting. I try to make it concise uh, and I try to make it relatable. So it's about having those insights um, and, and just making it interesting so people actually care about what you're saying. Do you think storytelling can help share data and other customer insights so that others in your organization understand those insights? Definitely, I believe storytelling is a, is the only way right now. Um, because at the minute, it's just a lot of numbers and it's not that interesting to look at. So something that would help me put that into sort of a story almost as to uh, what I'm, our customers are going through with our company would be good. Yeah, uh, using storytelling can um, make insights come to life in a way that just like giving some top level uh, bullet points about like customers find X difficult and X easy. You know, if you can actually tell a story about a customer experiencing that or like provide a compelling narrative that like is more easily shareable or uh, easier to process and remember then it could be a lot more engaging. So, yes. I think by creating a persona, right, like making it someone that they feel like they can relate to, um, connects to the organization, um, kind of brings out those, that emotional side of research, right? And so it allows people to connect a little more deeply because they can kind of see this, like the side of the customer, put themselves in those shoes and see like a real example um, of kind of how that's playing out and that tends to help actually. Yeah, I think storytelling is a great way. I think it gives, you know, everyone likes a bit of a story. Um, you know, if you're out with your friends and stuff and they're telling you a story, people get, you know, people listen. And that's what you want. People to pay attention as well. I love how the compilation went from like, you could see, you could literally see the pain or hear it, you know, the sigh <laughs> that that, that yeah. gentleman made after his comment. But then also kind of the shift to sort of like, oh, well, 
you know, when it works really well, this is, these are the things we see, right? And a lot of that, to me, sounded like that, that storytelling and the ability to sort of like latch on to something tangible versus just looking at a bunch of data, I guess. But yeah, curious what you think. Well, they gave a lot of good advice. Uh, I would say storytelling and, uh, you know, uh, helping people, like I said, understand the texture more of the human experience versus the, you know, data, the the analogy I sometimes use for this is there's the, um, from philosophy, the old, you know, like the, um, the story about the cave and how, I think it's from Plato and, and people are sitting in there, they think they're seeing humanity, but it's really the shadow of the fire uh, against people. And they're just seeing the shadow on the wall of, it's not reality. It's a shadow of it. I think that what data often is, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a shadow. It's not actually reality. Um, and so when we have all this quantitative data, which is very valuable, it doesn't really help you see what is really happening and also connect with it as a person. Um, and so, you know, to be human is to, going back to my literature comment earlier, I mean, we're story storytellers and we're story listeners and story is just what makes people people, I think. And so this pairing, of if you lean, if you only come with the story and then you can't give people a sense of, well, how, how much is the story playing out around us? Or how important is the story? Or what's the impact of the story? then that might not get you all the way there. But then if you only have the hard, cold facts, then you might not be able to get people to, to really lean in and want to do something about it or really understand it. And so this combination of telling a good story, but backing it up and connecting it to things that are more either quantitative or more, um, you know, measurable. I think that combo is so, so powerful, but when you remove one of those two ingredients, I think that you're, you're ultimately, you know, partly flying blind. And uh, so uh, the storytelling advice, I think, is is spot on. Yeah, it is. I couldn't agree with you more in terms of building that holistic story around not just what's happening, but but why and more of like the word texture is really interesting, right? Like you get to sort of feel it and sense it and get an understanding of what's going on beyond just what you're seeing, but you in the numbers, but you're right in that the numbers are so important, either to help you investigate and find a story, <laughs> right? Or to, exactly. uh, let's say, like, I don't like the word validate, but I can't think of a better word right now, but, uh, but it's, um, Sometimes you need the story to then go investigate the impact, right? Or the, 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 get, get the numbers behind it. Yeah. Yeah. The combo. And I, the last thing I'll say is, you know, they, one of the, I think it was a gentleman who side, you know, talking about just like the report and the report just sitting there. I think the other advice I give designers or researchers is to think of everything that you make as a tool. So, you know, you don't create, a, you know, a tool to just sit in the toolbox, right? But you have to craft it for use and, and teach. And when you present it, say, this is something you're going to be using and here's how to use it. So like, you know, I think, you know, uh, mapping kind of like journey mapping, things like that, ecosystem mapping, those approaches, sometimes people say, oh, it's not worth the time. Some people say, no, without this, we can't see. I think in, I think in the end, 
that the ones that have been created that are actually used as a tool and can be used as a tool are much more successful than just a data visualization that get presented and then on some file drive, right? That somebody remembered later, like, oh, didn't we one time do something? Um, So to think of everything as I'm trying to put a tool in someone's hand to do a better job and to think about how you craft anything that you make from that vantage point versus a communication piece. Um, I think that is a very important uh, distinction to think about. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, the way I like to think about it is that we tend to be really good at understanding our external users and customers because that's what we that's what our role is, right? That's the the, the sort of yeah. premise of what we do. But it's so important to also understand your internal users and stakeholders, like almost I don't want to say researching them, but at least understanding what they need. And then crafting your deliverable, it's, it's, it's kind of meta actually. <laughs> no, it, and it's, so it's, it's really, it's really important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Awesome. So we're going to jump into the lightning questions. So these are a series of questions that we ask everyone on the show. Um, so what's a book that you've recently read that you'd recommend to our listeners? Well, there's one I keep picking up in every week, (laughs) which is Brave New Work, um, which is, you know, about, you know, how do you design and operate, you know, the organization design an operating system for it. And there's just so many valuable nuggets in there because a lot of, in service design, there's so much of what we're doing is really designing for the organization, how the organization works and trying to help organizations become more service oriented. And and just then thinking about designing my own company. There's just so many good nuggets in there. If you're looking for a book that about how you um, create a pr- more purpose-driven organization and all the decisions you, and you need to make around that and how you um, make an organization that is more, um, that really more empowers employees uh, around a, around a common cause. Like I, I love that book and the work that the, the author and their team team do. So I was just saying, yeah, thanks for that book recommendation. It, it looks really interesting. Next question is a piece of advice you'd give someone trying to convince others to invest in customer feedback. Uh, it might sound wild, but uh, these <laughs> scenarios still yeah, exist. That's, that's a broad, yeah, broad one. Um, well, I, I think going back to, I mean, there's a lot of things you could do, but like going back to the earlier part of our conversation about reducing the degrees between people and and who you're trying to understand, you know, I, I think bringing people into the research, you know, I'm working with a, my team mine's working with a company now and um, they actually do a pretty good job, but like we're just identifying certain individuals to bring closer to the work and to actually hear firsthand, take them into some customers' homes because they're going to, then they'll open up to believing in it more and influencing other people. And so I think one of the things is in general, like we're trying to get more feedback in here, I would say try to narrow down and find people that if you can get them to see things differently and start believing in it, that they can help bring others along versus just the research team or the design team having to do it, that, you know, uh, having, having people do the work for you <laughs> to, to make that change in your culture, I think is, is a good, good move. Yeah. I love that. Bringing people along. It's, it's so important. Um, 
And finally, when you think of the future of service design, which is where you've spent a good part of your career, what are you most excited about? Oh, wow. I don't know. Excited, excited, terrified. Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, I think, you know, the the way that I think of service design is really, you know, it's, it's really about changing organizations. Uh to be more service oriented and to um, to work at a different pace layer than some of the product design technology work. Um, so if you if you think about the concept of pace layers, that some things change more quickly than others. I think I'm excited about the ability to it to be a pace layer that's still moving quickly, but maybe with the reflection and the and the zoom out to really understand and help people really make smarter decisions about these complex systems that we're trying to change together. Um, but then I'm, I'm also kind of the challenge of, I mentioned earlier that you hear in companies, you know, fast, fast, fast. Um, and a lot of what we try to do in service design is that it it's faster to get to the changes that are going to be more, I think, uh, positive and sustainable but it in the near term, sometimes it looks like, can't you go a little bit faster? So <laughs> I'm excited that companies, I think, are hiring more service designers, um, embracing more of these techniques. But I'm also on my toes about that. In the end, people want change fast, even when it's hard to do, and that we have to be able to have, bring people along and help them understand and kind of push ourselves to figure out the leanest ways that we can do some of these approaches without... Um, but without uh, just removing all the rigor. And I'm sure that sounds familiar to a researcher and, and, and how quickly can we get to those insights? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really, it is an exciting and interesting and it's a challenge that, that kind of lies ahead, but I think it's a fun one to, to, to work on and untangle. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Thanks so much, Patrick, for, for joining us today on the Human Insight Podcast. That was a, a lot of fun. I learned a lot from you. And um, yeah, this, this, was, this was great. Thank you. Cool. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you liked it, please share it with a friend or coworker. If you think it could have been better, let us know. Email us at podcast.usertesting.com. Thanks. Thanks.